Welcome to the Sustainability and You podcast, a series of interviews focusing on facts shared by passionate advocates who are part of the movement towards net zero. I'm Josephine Bush, and I'm the founder of the Sustainability and You platform. And I'm Tilly Wickens, the leader of our Young Ambassadors Council. In this podcast series, our aim is to raise awareness, encourage collaboration, and join the dots between disciplines that will influence policy and decision-making as we move to net zero. We are aiming to bridge the gap between silos and generations, strengthening the lines of communication with a small, influential community of people who care and are passionate about how we create change. In this episode of the Sustainability and You podcast, we interview Professor David Hill, CBE. David has significant experience in consultancy, nature conservation, and company business strategy. He runs an ecological consultancy company, is chairman and owner of the Environment Bank Limited, and was previously chief scientific advisor to RPS Group PLC. He is also owner and director of the Environmental Markets Exchange. Over the last few years, he has been actively involved in promoting environmental markets to provide new and innovative ways of mitigating for impacts on ecosystem services arising from development, industry and corporate businesses. David is a fellow and past president of the Chartered Institute of Ecology and Environmental Management. He has published extensively on ecological issues over the last 30 years. David, welcome to the Sustainability and You podcast. Uh, I'm joined by Philip, uh, who will co-host with me today, and we're delighted to have this opportunity to speak to you. We wanted to start by understanding a little bit about your journey to where you are today. You've had a very distinguished career in ecology, leading you through to your current role as founder and chair uh, of Environment Bank. So can you tell us a little bit about that and how you've navigated from being this distinguished academic through to a successful leader in the commercial world? Certainly, Josephine. Well, it's a pleasure to be here with you both. And um, I guess that it, it would be an overstatement to say that I've navigated it particularly well. <laughs> I think um, I think as we all uh, set off on our journeys in our early, very early 20s, you actually never know where it's going to take you, but you're full of enthusiasm and ambition, and in my case, certainly passion for the natural environment. And um, I started, uh, I did a first degree in ecology, uh, straight ecology, and then I was very fortunate enough to get into an organization called the Edward Gray Institute at the University of Oxford in their Department of Zoology, which was, there are three places in order to study ornithology or bird ecology in the world, and either EGI is one of those. So I was incredibly lucky to get there. And I spent my doctorate working on population dynamics of birds. Having done that, I, I then went to work for a series of NGOs. Uh, from a variety of things in the ecology world and I think by 1992 I decided that I really needed to 
try my hand at setting up a business. And it was at a time when ecology and ecological consultancy was incredibly in its infancy. So I set up one of the first ecological and environmental consultants in the UK back in 92, uh, ran it for uh, about 10 or 11 years and sold it in 2002 to a FTSE 250. And I, I enjoyed that, but it gave me an incredibly sharp focus on how development just does not work for the natural environment as it ought to. So by 2001, 2002, I tried to think of ways of disrupting that whole system. I worked for four years for the PLC that uh, I merged with and took a bit of that time to, to expand my sort of knowledge base around a whole range of different environmental disciplines. By 2006, I decided to leave them. I think I was only supposed to stay for two years, but I stayed for four because they were such a good organisation. It's called the RPS Group, PLC. And I then um, had this moment where I thought we need to set up a, a business that can actually disrupt the whole biodiversity accounting system in relation to development. So I set up the Environment Bank. And the reason why it was called Environment Bank was that there was something going on in the States called mitigation banking. And I wanted to keep my options open. So I called it Environment Bank, which was much more wide, uh, wide scale or, uh, or more um, uh, enabled me to do a range of environmental things. And then the rest is sort of long history because I I, I decided, I wrote in 2004 that development should actually develop, deliver gains for nature as its means by which it uh, could get the legitimacy for planning permissions. And I'd spent 15 or more years designing mitigation schemes for developers only to see them fail because the developers went back with uh, new models on their master plan, moaned a little bit about the, the costs of dealing with this biodiversity. It was all too difficult and it got in the way and impacted on viability. And so I came up with this idea and initially was called biodiversity offsetting. But we moved quickly beyond that to actually see a means by which development could make a contribution to natural capital and to nature and to biodiversity. And that's when Biodiversity Net Game was born. And by that time, I think by 2006, I joined as a founding member of Natural England, the government's statutory advisors on nature conservation, and, and quite openly sort of lobbied for this whole idea to be brought into law. And yes, it took 14 years, but eventually they decided to bring it into law through the enactment of the Environment Bill in 2000, uh, 2021. And again, then I realised I needed to get some decent financing to back this whole thing because it was now going to happen and take off. So the interesting part for me is that although I'd done a lot of research and re research ecology and written a few books and got a few uh, scientific papers I probably academia was certainly not my niche habitat and it took um didn't take very long for me to realize I was probably better at business than I was being an academic and so the transition was certainly mine to just get on with really and I, I actually really liked the opportunity of setting up business generating income streams looking at new ideas generating novel approaches to things and and uh, and that's where I am now well, that's a really rich and insightful uh, insight, really, to your career journey. Um, we'll unpick some of this, particularly some of the roles that you have had, because I think what it evidences is the multidisciplinary nature 
of what has brought you here today uh, and has made you uh, incredibly successful in what you do, which I think is really interesting for our audience to to think about how you combine science and business and other skills um, to to become successful in the certainly within the field of uh, climate change and, and biodiversity. I mean, perhaps we could start by taking a step back uh, and looking at the bigger picture of how the impacts of biodiversity loss and climate change impact us now. We know, and you've explained it very well, um, that there's increasing focus on biodiversity and, 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 and rightly so. But do you think the interaction between the two is really understood by the market? It's a, a really good question. I don't think it's fully understood yet, but we are far more advanced in our understanding than we were two years ago. And I think certainly climate change, for, for all the right reasons, has, has gained all the headlines as, as to what we've got to do in relation to um to saving ourselves effectively. But I don't and I don't think that the interlinking between biodiversity and climate change has yet been properly worked out other than perhaps more in the academic circles but it hasn't reached the markets yet and in fact the taste all around in my view sort of the tangibility so carbon and the carbon markets seem less tangible to me than biodiversity because i can see i can see it on the ground when we're creating habitats which will build resilience to climate change there's you know there's no doubt about that I think that what has been really important, I think, in the last two years, and probably not beyond that, maybe three years, has been the recognition that climate change and biodiversity loss are both existential threats. So that if we actually could fix climate change, and I really hope we can, and of course, climate change has happened many, many times before in in the um, evolution of the earth, but not challenged by nearly 8 billion people so um so it's a very new phenomenon for us absolutely but i think that we in terms of disentangling the two we've got to treat them both as equal problems uh, and i think that people are now realizing that if we fixed climate change well, we would still be in a major major problem because of the way that we've exploited over exploited the natural resources literally in the last 50 60 70 years that's really when the biodiversity impacts have have happened. Uh, And so fixing biodiversity loss will contribute to climate change resilience as well. And it's it's a tall challenge, but one that we've basically got to address now. It's really that critical. But even our narrative or our language, if you like, about how we talk about these things would present them as two distinct pillars that are impacting on the health of our planet. We talk about greenhouse gas emissions and then very independently we'll talk about biodiversity loss. The thing that concerns me is the lack of narrative around the inextricable link, although we are hearing more of that now. But the market response and the regulatory response around the ascertaining of information and then how one might report on organisational or national uh, impacts on on greenhouse gas emissions, on biodiversity loss, are very distinct narratives. How do we sort of bring that together just conceptually so that the understanding of that inextricable link is really really taken into consideration in the development of policy and um, organisational strategies? I think that the 
the difference for in relation to biodiversity is that the, the general public don't really understand how critically important biodiversity is. They can actually understand how climate change impacts on them because of flooding, um, severe droughts, et cetera, et cetera, which are happening year on year. And every year we seem to have more extremes. And each year is like this 2023 is the warmest on record. So people can can relate to that uh, more easily than the biodiversity loss. There's a there's a section of the community that can understand because they're they're keen on, on nature. They can understand what's happening and that it's declining dramatically. Uh, and largely through industrial agriculture and climate change and, uh, as I say, over-exploitation. But um, what brings them both together, and I think which is really has got to be the focus, and, and that societies and governments understand, is the impacts, the inextricable impacts on economies. And I think that that I've seen when we start to talk about the, the, the global impacts of biodiversity loss on economic uh, growth, then I think it really starts to ge generate or gain a, a common currency with climate impacts. Uh, and so, you know, you, we, 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 we tout around figures such as $44 trillion of economic value is generated by biodiversity or what nature provides if you like, over 50% of global GDP. And that's been set and, and measured by economists, not by ecologists and environmentalists. Mm. And so that's the big change in the narrative. Um, you look at the World Economic Forum uh, and those figures are, are out there. So I think that's a, that's a big change for me that is helpful. I mean, it's interesting, isn't it, that it's an economic value that drives that increasing recognition not an innate understanding of the value of nature in and of itself, which I think when we'll come on to it, you know, I think does cause us problems in how we tackle um, these challenges because you're you're trying to balance, I guess, a, a, a moral view yeah. or a, a different type of value view uh, of, of the value of nature um, versus its economic value. But you talked about the sort of trillions of dollars of uh, global GDP dependency on on nature. Um, what about the the latent risks then that are unquantified because of our lack of understanding and lack of data as to how biodiversity is impacting uh, the natural world. I mean, there are a lot of financial models out there that are increasingly getting more sophisticated as it relates to climate change, but less so as it relates to the impacts of biodiversity loss. Um, and yeah. we can understand the value proposition, but do we understand the risk proposition? I think risk the risk proposition relies heavily on the science. And the science in ecology is, is almost like four-dimensional compared to the science with climate. And so it's a it's a it's a much more tricky thing. What I would say though is that when you look at the scale of biodiversity loss and the speed with which it's happening, we really and it's awful perhaps for a scientist to say this, but I will, a scientist from my historical background, um, we, we don't have the time to get all the answers around how to, how to, to ensure that all the risks can be covered off by the science. I think that, that the 
so much that we still don't understand about ecology but actually there's a heck of a lot that we really do understand so we know how to we do know how to build rebuild ecosystems at scale and if there are lots of good examples from yellowstone national park to even projects decent sized projects in the uk that are happening that can show us what we can do and actually many of those are not necessarily based on having all of the science answers nailed down there's a lot within ecology that's about doing things on the ground and looking what happens and so that i'm a, and i'm a real advocate of that uh, because we just haven't got the time that we might otherwise wish we had to work out the the proper approaches I mean, we've just had a global stock take in the run-up to COP28, um, which is focused on uh, the uh, adherence to the Paris Agreement as it relates to national commitments to greenhouse gas emissions and keeping in within 1.5. Would you like to have seen that extended to, to, to biodiversity uh, data and uh, national commitments to reporting? Uh, on their current position totally and it one of the biggest frustrations and this was also when I was with Natural England is that we would come up with targets so 2010 targets 2020 targets now we've got 2030 targets we've got the 30 percent by 2030 um, of all land put into nature recovery uh, and it's really frustrating because when we do that and and, and subsequently always miss those targets it does beg the questions to you know, how serious are we in turning that whole process around? So I do believe that um, we have to have targets, but if we have targets, we have to have a policy mechanism and landscape that actually addresses it. And I think that's where we always fall down. So I think we've done pretty well, actually, in some of the climate um, setting targets and the reductions in emissions and the renewable trends, et cetera. But we haven't done anything like the same with biodiversity. Uh, it's a constant reporting of decline. Uh, and, you know, dare I say it, but the environmental NGOs have been saying this for a long time, and it becomes a bit of a doom and gloom narrative that people it turns people off. So how do you give people hope as to how we can actually achieve that? Um, and that brings probably brings me on to there are two ways of doing that. One is that you have a system where it's paid for through the public sector, and one is, by, is whereby you, you have... A much greater emphasis on the private sector taking mo doing most of the heavy lifting and there are advocates um i recently saw a report by a group that said the private sector shouldn't be involved in this it's you know we don't like the private sector we don't like people making money out of the environment for example but there is absolutely no chance uh, or hope of us being able to solve the biodiversity loss issue by using public funds we cannot do that so therefore private investment is crucial and so the way to achieve that is having frameworks and regulation that requires the business sector to to make its contribution and it will be a much much greater contribution than we'll ever than we've ever seen from the public sector otherwise we will fail so so around target setting for biodiversity we know we know what we've got to achieve mm. we know the losses that we've achieved we've got phenomenal data on biodiversity uh, over the last 80 years and basically what it requires is a, is a is an ultimately a, a massive change in land use and we can come on to that uh, if there's time yeah. and also but also a massive change in how we view private enterprise and its contribution 
uh, and on what impacts that has on what we foresee as growth. And I've always felt that the pursuit of growth has been at the expense of our long-term future. So it's all about short-term gain. And I'd really like to focus the economics on on longer term. And I've just been reading, obviously, Donut Economics, which is Mm. quite a lot. Great, Raymer. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I definitely recommend that. Philip, I think you want to ask a question. Still don't really fully understand or hear is why... We seem to get climate and we hear bad reporting, loss of biodiversity, but it doesn't seem to stick as much as climate does. Why do you think that is? I mean, you touched on a few points, but for me, it still doesn't quite clearly come out, you know, why there seems to be such a big gap in, okay, we need to tackle climate, but biodiversity is still a bit of a sideshow in a way. Well, I think that, um, yeah, I probably I probably wouldn't agree that it, it well, I probably wouldn't agree personally that it's a sideshow but I do believe you're right in that general publics don't really get it and I think it goes back to you know previously when we were saying that people can appreciate and the news items are on on climate change heavy storm damage um, damage impacts flooding people displaced I think those are immediate images that really do impact on us however with biodiversity loss you know, we all watch the fantastic Attenborough um, programs, uh, which are amazing, phenomenal filming. But if you just look, watch those on their own, you'd think actually everything's fine and hunky-dory out there. What are we worried about? But if you then realise that, um, again, back to the economics of it, um, and it's not tangible or easy for the general public to see at all, but, you know, reliance on pollinators and we've had a 75%, in fact, actually, it's a really incredible German study that showed 75% decline in invertebrates in the last 50 years, which many of which are pollinators. So, in fact, actually, we will not be able to pollinate crops. Soil organic material, actually breaking down of waste, uh, enabling fresh water um, rather than really poor quality water. Air quality, um, you know, oxygen in the air comes from biodiversity, from vegetation uh, uh, respiratory uh, and photosynthesis. So, but but it's true that we're not explaining that in a simple way to the general public, to the taxpayer, and that is the that is probably the biggest threat that we face. And whilst you know, I'm bound to say that if you look at uh, drought situations caused by climate change. Of course, they're going to create massive biodiversity impacts. They're also going to create massive migration impacts, the likes of which we have absolutely never seen. When this, when southern Europe suddenly becomes uninhabitable, the movement of people then will be dramatic. But yes, how you actually get people to understand the more intricate details mm-hmm. of what biodiversity does for us, that is a challenge. And we need mm-hmm. some really good narratives taught in schools around that, I think. Well, I was just going to say, I mean, it's just a massive educational challenge, isn't it? Which um, Descopta recognised, didn't he, in his uh, uh, yeah. review. Um, so I hope the educational system is uh, responding alongside uh, governments and organisations. But let's get a bit practical now, if we may, uh, David, because I think you've articulated really well some of the broader challenges around our understanding of biodiversity loss, its connections to climate change the need for both a national and effective policy response, uh, as well as participation by the private sector. But if we really get underneath the skin of that now, I think one of the things I'd like to get your views on is 
how we as stewards of land should think about our practical approach to the preservation, adaption and regeneration uh, of land to serve our multitude of of needs um, that impact our health, access to food, preservation of just the the foundation stones of our biodiversity um, building blocks. Can you say something about that first? Because I think that will lead us on to some of these policy uh, responses and the economic uh, response to to how we service that. Yes, Josephine, I think that the key, one of the key things I'd say is that we haven't had ever a land use strategy, for example, in, in the UK. I mean, other countries, I think, do. Uh, not many, but some do. So, so effectively, what we've built up is a fairly ad hoc system based on a planning system plus agriculture and growing food. I think the way to address in our small little world here uh, climate change issues and biodiversity loss is is ultimately very, very quickly to move away from industrial agriculture. I think industrial agriculture is a huge mallet that isn't that, that is far too coarse and broad as it is at the moment. So we've got to get much more sophisticated. Um, if you can imagine that the, there's a vast amount of artificial fertilizer, nitri- nitrates and phosphates used, uh, which is an industry in its own right. Uh, there's a huge emphasis on seed uh, merchants and production, huge emphasis on agricultural machinery, all of which are, are industries in their own right. But actually, they create a model in of food production in which 52% of the farms in the UK actually are not recovering their costs. Uh, and we're, so we're and we're also therefore growing food that isn't actually fit for purpose uh, in in a in a modern society with all the health issues that are ongoing. So I, I sit on something called the Food Farming and Countryside Commission, and we've been trying to look at how to change the whole narrative of food growing away from crop yield as being the only thing, um, moving moving growing food from just growing calories into growing nutrition. And that's really key. And so, for example, if you were to design a system for food growing now that protects and enhances natural capital on which we all depend, as we know, it wouldn't be by deep ploughing, drilling seed, putting on huge amounts of nitrate and, and phosphate fertiliser, and then you know up to seven treatments of chemicals to control pests. It's just not appropriate for the future so what we want to see is a regenerative agricultural system based on agroecological approaches to farming so there'll be mixed much more emphasis on mixed cropping more emphasis on growing legumes and pulses fruit and vegetables mm-hmm. uh, moving very much away from these acreages of of um, winter wheat and and uh, and uh, winter barley uh, and doing it because diets need to transition away from eating as much meat as we do so if we don't eat as much meat, we don't need, we could actually cut 50% of the cereal acreage out of the farming system and put it into other crop uh, systems. And also then also have uh, landscapes which are transformed through nature recovery to build the resilience of ecosystems and control flood mitigation and all of those sorts of things that, that nature yeah. can provide. So you, so there you're, you're really exploring the concept of land sharing where land can be used for more than one purpose at the same time, yeah. biodiversity benefits as well as uh, agricultural 
benefits, yeah. but but focused agricultural benefits, as I think what you're saying is let, let's rethink how we what we grow and what we eat, as well as having that sit alongside uh, the health of our land. I think we are doing that now. And I'm not a great fan of the land sparing, which basically says we'll farm everything intensively and, and to hell, basically. And we'll actually spare bits of land for our biodiversity. That's absolutely not the right way to do it. There are advocates of that, obviously. Um, I, I think you've got to integrate the two, but also you integrate the two in a way where you do have large scale uh, nature recovery areas that are juxtaposed with regenerative agricultural systems uh, where you might have agroforestry and other mixed cropping systems but uh, but you basically need to create diversity in land cover and at the moment what's happened since the second world war is that diversity of land cover has shrunk dramatically so that we now see all these huge fields with very intensive uh, they're industrial that's basically what they are and I get very frustrated by certain parts of um, of uh, of society, the media and, and professional bodies that that say we've got to have all this land to secure food, food security. There's absolutely nothing secure in the way that we grow our food at the moment. Nothing at all. And that's because it's challenged by climate change and these biodiversity loss impacts, which are which are having this effect. We, we've really got to get back to a system or in, or reinvent a system of multi-cropping uh, models where you actually you know you keep all org organic material in the ground for example you enable it yeah. to hold water for longer etc yeah. etc because that builds resilience building resilience yeah, yeah within the landscape but actually it's really not difficult to do if you yeah. can get the economics right it's not difficult and and some places such as the wild ken hill and other regenerative farming systems are starting to show how it can be done and in fact i don't think they've seen a, a significant impact on yield so that really then begs the question, you know. So what's the best example you can give us of where you've started to see this happen in a uh, economically sustainable way? Well, because it's it's still early days. I mean, a lot of the the work of the Sustainable Food Trust, um, I think, is fantastic. They've looked at these systems in some detail in the the in the economic output approaches as well. And then places like, as I mentioned, Wild Ken Hill in Norfolk, where they've got. Uh, let me get the figures right but certainly 2,000 or more acres of land that they've transitioned from intensive systems where they um, were spending a huge amount of money on chemicals so not just artificial fertilizers but also um, pesticide treatment fungicides insecticides and herbicides um, and they they've moved that and I don't think they've seen much of a, uh, a an impact on yield but they have seen a very very significant increase in biodiversity which is a good indicator that the system is 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 mm -hmm. starting to build resilience. And those those sites can actually be modified within five to six, seven years. So we're talking relatively short term um, of gains. And they're saving, as I say, a fortune on on um, not not using those chemicals as they would have done previously in a in a just a simple, you know, we have to apply this now because otherwise we'll get a black grass problem, et cetera, et cetera. And in fact, of course, a lot of the agricultural um, cropping systems, I mean, they are simple, but many of the um, species which reduce yield and for which we use chemical, chemical inputs, chemical pesticides, are now building resistance to those chemicals. So the chemistry set is failing and we're running out of answers. So we've got to change it anyway. What, what would you say? I mean, it sounds like 
the way you outline it seems very obvious, very straightforward. Why is it not being adopted? Or who? what is the, the tangible first step that we need to take to incorporate the system you outline at, at large I think, scale? I think in let's our, say in the UK. Yeah, well, I think in our experience, well, my individual experience, I've worked in the farm landscape for a long, well, all my life now, but, um, and and we have a, we have a couple of small farms, but the, one of the difficulties is the, the culture of the farming sector because they work they they often don't farmers don't actually often cooperate but they will mm -hmm. they are keen on working out if one farmer over the hedge is doing something different to them oh is that going to be better for me do i need to be looking at that so farmer to farmer peer um interaction is really really critical uh, and mm -hmm. it takes a long time to turn around the tanker um but we are starting to see that and there are some really fantastic people involved in moving that in the farming world so in my in my part of the world up here we have the high nature farming network um, and the hill farmers network where they do talk to each other and look at solving problems and one of the issues has been to move away from uh, the the volume the number of sheep that are grown in the uplands for example which has you know, the more sheep you have, the more vet med, med bills you have, you're fighting climate change, you're fighting elevation and altitude. Uh, so you're having to buy more and more inputs. The actual way to make money out of sheep is to get rid of a lot of sheep. Um, and it sounds bizarre, but that at the moment is the way to do it. And um, a number of farmers are doing that. But you can imagine if you've been doing that all your life, growing sheep, to suddenly realise it isn't a, a market economy that's going to work for you, and, and you're only living off your spouse's income, then you've got to change the system. And government is helping. There's no doubt about that. There's some, a lot of good new advice coming through from government. And of course, if I can just finally uh, make the point that the whole financing of farming is changing dramatically as we speak with the phasing out of the basic payment scheme uh, as a post-Brexit um, uh, initiative, so that in, in farmers will not get money just for having land anymore um they will have to do um agri environmental improvements and enhancements to gain money that contributes to their overall income stream however once you take the bps the basic payment scheme out of those um systems and that 52% of uk farms not meeting their costs included subsidy payments so when you take that out you can see that there's some pretty big impacts likely to happen in the way that we see value and use land in the future but it's got to come i mean it's for too long been based on the subsidy payment system and if we explore that a little bit further david can you say a little bit more about the the funding gap you know when we look at per capital spend mm -hmm. uh, particularly compared to, to the us and especially post the Inflation Reduction Act, uh, was certainly found to be wanting this side of the water. The Green Finance Institute has set out its understanding of the uh, financing gap, but perhaps you could say a little bit about that and then what the solutions are to sort of bridging that gap. So definitely, and I think that's another positive point that we are and have measured what that gap is. And I think if I'm right, it's between what 4.7 and 9.3 billion a year that we need to spend uh, over the next 10 years. Well, it was to 20, 
2030, but now, of course, we're already at 2024, um, and we're not spending anything like that amount. And if you actually took, if you if you take the argument that the public sector and the NGO sector can pay for this, you soon realise that that fails. So if you look at the 17 major environmental NGOs, and you look at their income stream, they they around about a billion pounds that they generate a year. Um, but only three to four hundred million of that seems to go directly into biodiversity restoration on the ground. If you then add in the 380 or 400 million from government for agri-environment schemes, that's around 780 million. But that is a, a fraction of what we actually need to do the nature recovery based on the work of the GFI uh, and others, of course. And so, um, you know, you're looking at a, a tenfold increase in what we currently think we spend on biodiversity restoration, which has failed dramatically because we've suffered a 60% decline in biodiversity. And so that has to be made up by new models. And that's why I think I, you know, I'm really encouraged by the work that government's been doing, looking at nature finance and how do you uh, set the frameworks for the corporate sector to get involved. And it's only right really because otherwise if if we continue as we are then not only have we been subsidized the taxpayer been subsidizing the farming sector to produce um cheap food and it isn't actually cheap because of all the in of all the externality costs that make food much more expensive than you see on the prices in the supermarkets etc um but if you if you take that 700 or 800 million and we've got to get to 9.3 billion, then 8 billion has got to come from the private sector. So you're going to need to have frameworks. And what we don't want to see is the taxpayer just subsidizing corporate business because they're not addressing the true cost of the use of nature in their business models. And that's where we are now. And I think that um, we've we still got to see a whole, a whole load more movement on that and it's got to be faster than it's been going to date but I'm encouraged at least we are addressing that issue. And how do you think government policy then should evolve to address this and and, and, and what kind of signals then if it's not subsidy um, should it be given to encourage the private sector to engage in the problem and, and develop commercial sustainable solutions that work for all so i think the, the the what and i've been asked this by government ministers what would you do what's the one thing that you if it's this one thing we had to do and i have to say i'd almost entirely say it's getting behind the tnfd mandate that's an intelligent response to um the whole sort of natural capital economics that isn't working at the moment if the uk could take a lead by mandating a requirement for all corporates over relatively small company size to be required to measure, disclose and report on their impacts on natural capital. And I know it's a complex area, but it is an area that's growing dramatically in interest. People are crowding into that market to actually provide solutions, which I think are uh, that's a really good thing. Then if government can do that and require those corporates to do that disclosure, whilst we don't talk about offsets within the corporate business environment uh, we talk about the nature positive movement and I think that's an incredibly uh, good thing uh, uh, and positive thing dare I say for for where we need to be 
And so is, is, is your, sorry, sorry, is your philosophy here that um, the disclosure of information that will emanate from the task force for nature related financial disclosures, the information that then is put out there will help drive better decision making and direct capital to where exactly. it needs to go. So there's accountability by corporates, but by but the information for governments is also incredibly useful. Is that is that the underlying That's entirely right. Yeah. That's entirely right as I as I see it and as I've read it, that um it would generate the two things. One would be a regulatory framework that would be a mandate on TNFD, but there's also investor pressure. And we're already seeing a lot of that, you know, looking at the Environmental Finance Journal every day, there are uh, reports on people doing this now and scaling it. Um, and you also, you hear a lot of stories around there aren't enough project products and projects to invest in. There is money out there to do it. Um, but I, I suppose that it, it comes back to something I was saying five or six years ago, that if if you are a CEO of FTSE 100, and let's take that average 55% of global GDP relies on what nature provides, effectively those corporates have got something in the region of 55% risk that they're not telling um, their shareholders about. Now, I'd be pretty worried about putting my money into those businesses, I, I think. And I think that's something that's hit them square right, head on that they have to address that. And the, the way to address it is to disclose it, reduce impacts through their supply chain where they can, but then go to become a nature positive corporate uh, relatively quickly by buying into uh, systems that rebuild ecosystems at scale. So building the resilience. So effectively, if we all get involved in that at corporate level, we can change and turn around this biodiversity issue. We can't do it individually. It has to be the whole of those set of the sectors coming together. Then I think that we will see uh, some very significant turnarounds of biodiversity, which will then enable businesses to uh, be less reliant on the, the 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 impending doom of loss that is continuing to uh, to hit them. If we accept that that will make a difference, how do we help corporates then get over the 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 costs of compliance and in initiating that process because. You probably hear this, I hear this, that there's a lot of concern around the burden on organisations to access the relevant skill sets in order to be able to undertake these reviews uh, mm -hmm. and effectively disclose in a way that's meaningful. This, of course, is on top of other regulatory or framework cha uh, disclosure changes um, that organisations are dealing with as it relates to climate change and um, new accounting standards that are coming in as well that um, organisations are having to adhere to. It feels like a, a very big burden for organisations to have to, to, to lean into. How, how can we make it simpler, I suppose, is the... Is the question. I think simpler is the answer. And I think that we've seen this, I can refer to biodiversity net gain. So when we were creating the metric and working with DEFRA to create a metric, you realise that actually there are some people that are just interested in the dynamics of the metric, not really actually interested in the outcome from, from the metric. I'm actually not interested in the dynamic of the metric, I'm interested in the outcome. You could see that the complexities around the metric could have become ridiculous if we'd have said, you know, had... 40 or 50 things that need to be measured before you can actually make a move. You've got to boil those down to sort of seven or eight. And I think that's the danger. 
that we might see in the biodiversity uh, market world that that lots of people who are interested in measurement and metrics and the science uh, maybe could hijack the thing and cause it to fail so yeah one one piece of advice i would give would be to keep it simple look at the major contributing variables that we need to measure um and we can save what some of those are but um not here i'm sure but we can set that out in a simple way the other thing i'd say is that we've seen with bng the sector try to make the point that it's too burdensome it's a, it's a real problem we actually worked out in the environment bank that the cost of bng delivery is around 0.6% of of the uh gross domestic uh, gross um development value so a, a housing scheme for example it's about 0.6% there are some variations on that so small schemes cost disproportionately more probably up to 2 or 3% but actually it's not in the 10 20% region um and so quite often those running those businesses make too much of a play on cost and if you imagine housing on average makes something like 23% profitability on every house sold um and with the sorts of levels of bonuses that are given in many of the big housing volume house builders i'm sorry to say but i don't believe that bng is going to have any cost whatsoever to them and so i'd probably say something similar to the corporate sector and then the final thing i would say is that actually the cost of not doing it is going to be existential so you know those corporate won't survive effectively if you if you can't address the biodiversity impacts within 30 30 or plus years they yeah. probably will fail those points are very well made well should we drill down into that concept then of biodiversity net gain and for those who might be listening um and, and are not so familiar with that term perhaps you could um go back to basics and just talk us through the concept and then what the environment bank is doing really to um crystallize value from that concept yeah sure so um as i mentioned at the beginning after all those years we managed to get biodiversity gain mandated into law which means that all development over a very small size and scale needs to deliver a minimum of 10% uplift in biodiversity for that project so what the, let's take a housing scheme as a as, as an example although of course we shouldn't forget that development is commercial warehousing logistics plants infrastructure airports you know, all of those sorts of things is is development as well as uh, residential sites but residential sites seem to be the one that people focus on because they believe you know people living in those uh, areas so they can relate to it more easily so that developer with a housing scheme will go out and measure what the baseline is of the land that they will have um, got bought under option from a landowner or farmer not landowner farmer um and they will work out what they they'll overlay that site with their master plan and that will lose biodiversity units from that development and there will be some areas where they can retain some of it uh and the balance you then add on 10% uplift and you then go and work out how to deliver that bng and there are two ways that the developer can deliver bng one is that some of it might be kept on on the site of that housing scheme generally that's a really poor solution in my view that's why i set the environment bank up in the first place because left to the developer um they move on they move off the site they uh they change their business model they might give the piece of land that they put it into to a residents association 
and the residents association often don't like this untidy biodiversity they like to remove it and so um, the majority of it we believe um, should and will be delivered off-site in specially constructed areas for wildlife enhancement at scale and that's where the environment bank comes in because um, I wasn't desperately interested in in doing much with the on-site BNG because I didn't think it has much longevity and I think that there are dare I say academics out there that have agreed with that that it isn't a it isn't a good solution so we focused um, all of our attention now on creating these large-scale habitat banks of anything from 10 hectares which is very small through to 550 hectares which at the moment is our largest and we capital fund all of the habitat creation works up front uh, and then we um underwrite that for a 30-year term and from that gives us the legitimacy to raise biodiversity net gain units that we sell to the developers to make them to enable them to be compliant with the new uh, legal requirement and so the, the really interesting part has been that we're generating a revenue stream for the farming and landowning sector or landholder sector which wasn't there before. They were used to getting grants to do biodiversity or uh, or income from other sources like agro-environment payments, um, uh, but they weren't, they hadn't really um, engaged with a, if you like, a more commercial model. And so we lease the land from the landowner, farmer, landholder. Um, we do all the habitat creation works with their guidance and help, and then we pay them for its management and the lease uh, that they get every year. And we're, we're now creating those across England to supply the demand. One thing I would say is that we, within the Environment Bank, our team have analysed the demand requirement across all the planning authority areas so that we know where the biggest demands are going to be. So we've been targeting many of those. Um, and that ultimately, it's the planning authorities that oversee and deliver the BNG because they've now got a legal duty to do that, as has the developer a legal duty to provide for BNG uh, themselves on their sites. So we work closely with the planning authorities uh, and we work closely with the developers and we provide a solution, which is effectively one-stop shop so that they can then go to the planning authority and list out in their what's called a biodiversity gain plan. They can show how their BNG is going to be delivered. And that's, that's effectively in a nutshell how the system will will work and because it's underpinned by law um i think we're being looked upon internationally as you know it's an incredibly good success story and even in the states where mitigation banking started 30 odd years ago um they see what we've achieved and i have to say you know due to the um the great work that the government did with defra um uh, etc natural england that to bring this to bear and to fruition enables the system to be in the regulatory space and therefore it's it's more likely to work. Voluntary schemes just don't work effectively. And for corporates that have made nature positive commitments, um, do, can they have access to the credits as well? That's exactly right. So the mechanism and the, the methodology is exactly the same. Um, it's a bit more sophisticated for um, the corporate sector because we're looking at how one might bring in carbon how one might bring in nutrient neutrality and those sorts of uh, uh, issues or other asset classes that can be achieved 
on the land in an additional way. And that's crucial because we can't be seen to be selling an asset twice uh, mm-hmm. to two buyers. So we're looking at the detail of that. But the our nature credits or biodiversity credits, nature shares model, we're working on that to work out how best to br- provide the corporate sector with a, an ability to buy in shares to the uplift value of our habitat banks. So the system is, is is identical in terms of what we do on the ground. The difference is that the the transactional arrangements are slightly different for the developer who needs it for compliance and the corporate at the moment in a voluntary biodiversity credit market space with the view that, of course, that if that does go mandatory through TNFD, then we will see a very, very significant increase in demand from the corporate sector. And in fact, I'm pretty sure that the demand from the corporate sector will be at least 10 or 12 times the scale of BNG. So we're playing in both areas at the moment because I think that's got to that's going to generate the biggest the biggest value for nature. And do you see those credits as tradable instruments? Ultimately, yes. Uh, and as others do, uh, but I think we're a, we're a little way off having the governance and the uh, transparency around that um, yet. And I, I don't know when that will happen, but probably within three or more years. So watch this space. <laughs> I think definitely watch yes. this space. And, <laughs> and, 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 I, and, I, and I can tell you, you know, people are approaching me all the time saying, how can we invest in Environment Bank or how can we invest in your Habitat Banks in a way that enables us to sell those units on if the market changes in, in the positive? And of course, investing in Environment Bank, yes, fine, but investing in nature shares in a way that enables them to speculate if they're not corporates, that isn't part of our business model at the moment. And um, we want to be very cautious about that. We've absolutely got to be cautious about anything to do with greenwashing. Yeah, I guess there are quite a lot of lessons learned from the carbon side as well then, right? With voluntary carbon markets. Um, and yeah. and because, I mean, there's been a lot of controversial opinions on this. So I guess you can hopefully take Entirely. take the negative point, yeah. yeah. Entirely. And and also, you know, I'm a, I'm a simple ecologist, so, when I start to talk to some of the financial folk, I do get slightly worried by the terminology. When I, when, as soon as I start to not understand something, I then start to really worry because we've got to keep it transactional and simple that everyone can understand. Otherwise, you know, you're into NFT territory. And, and I've seen a lot of that. And I have yeah. to say, I'm not sure I either want to understand it. It may happen. It may go down that route with crypto or whatever you want to call it, blockchain. Yes, indeed. But I don't understand that. I'm sure there are people far brighter than me that do. But actually, if I'm buying something, I want to see the tangible benefit on the ground yeah. by more biodiversity, more fantastic nature spaces. So the valuation proposition that sits behind it, um, David, are you able to say something around how the the credits are valued indeed so we, we we're pretty we're pretty good at knowing how much it costs to create these habitat types so just to go through the spectrum of them so we'll be creating woodlands wood meadows species rich grasslands wood meadow and scrub uh, species rich grassland mosaics and wetlands and then probably some wilded areas managed wilding I think is also incredibly valuable for biodiversity. 
managed wilding is very much like sort of early successional stage stage scrub before it goes through to woodland and what you have to do in those systems in in any region not just in the temperate region is to manage them to get the biggest biodiversity gains possible in the shortest period of time so, so we know how to do that at scale on the ground we know the cost of that and then we also know the costs the market costs of leasing land in certain parts of the country and we know the cost of managing it so when you aggregate those three things together you can work out the cost of what it is to deliver a habitat bank of say 100 acres or 40 hectares um then in terms of the pricing uh we we need to be obviously competitively priced the, the system uh, and we need to recover our own costs and make profit there's no doubt about that if we're borrowing money um, from our investors to put into these sites which is a, is a great thing we can't necessarily do this very easily organically um so we therefore need to make a profit so we price our credits um within a certain range um and give, giving you a very quick range they're they're in the range of 20 to 30 35 thousand pounds of biodiversity uh, unit um and and that you'd probably expect to get five six or up to seven biodiversity units per hectare so you can work out that figure but of course that money has got to be used to be there to fund the future of that habitat bank and one of the issues that we have at the moment that we are making sure government uh, we hope will will follow is that um the legitimacy to sell units is reliant upon you being able to demonstrate that you've got the long-term finance in place because it'd be very easy for me to say well i've got some land here you can buy credits from me and you know, I'll do something for two years and then I'll have to go out and get more money before I can do the next bit. But actually, we're not in that business. We create the whole thing up front and that gives us the legitimacy to sell those units uh, uh, onto the to the buyer. And then the final thing I would say is that there is a system called statutory units that is sold by government. And this was introduced because there was concern that the, there wouldn't be necessarily a market established for habitat banks or, or units out there for the developer to buy so that the developer has to have an easy frictionless way of delivering their bng off-site so they can go to the government and buy their credits if you like and we were concerned that the government would get into difficulty but with treasury for doing something that the private sector will do anyway and that they influenced and it got involved in in the market and, and shrunk the market because they were coming in too cheap. So fortunately, the government's looked at all of that and come up with a very good solution, which is relatively high-priced credit. So their units, statutory units, are around 84000 for a unit uh, compared to, say, our 20 or whatever it might be. But they go up to, say, £250,000 uh, per unit for the more difficult, complex habitat types that take more cost to create and to look after in the long term. So, so I think we've got the, the systems working well. Obviously, if people try and sell credits at a much lower value than that, I th we think they'll get into trouble because you can't actually deliver those units for lower value. It just, you, can, you cannot guarantee that they will be there in 30 years time where we effectively can.
So, Mike, obviously you have a very rich background and also kind of diversified background with academia and being in corporate. What do you see being the biggest opportunities moving into nature or biodiversity? And where do you see the biggest gaps? And one doesn't necessarily have to be the other. So gaps and opportunities could be different. But where do you see that being for young people to move into? Uh, definitely. It's a great, great question, Philip. Um, I, I'm really passionate about young people being able to get into this market now. And, and technology... Uh, is going to be key so yes we're using edna etc cetera, etc cetera. so 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 for the future people in for the future professionals in this business i would say yeah, get into the technology understand the technology also understand the economics and also um try and work through a system for the future which isn't all about gdp growth try and get a much better balanced picture of the future which isn't all about maximizing growth and do that in a way um that uh, the financial investor houses and markets can understand that's one one area i think that and i think the opportunities for people in this area are going to be huge because the, it once we can't not do this that's the whole point if we don't do this it, we're pretty much toast actually i think and and i know we've got to give people hope and the hope will come through having really strong bright professionals that actually can multitask around this the second thing i think is an opportunity is for people who work well with people uh, don't get don't 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 just sort of sit behind the computer doing this stuff get out there on the land and meeting the people that are delivering it on on the land, the farmers, the landowners, the landholders, because there's a huge amount that one will learn, um, and it's certainly been the case for me. I think the gaps um, are going to be and are at the moment trying to align the investor, the the the, the, the mindset of the investor to the mindset of the ecologist and the environmental professional. You're going to need to have people in these investment funds that really understand the the subject in a way that uh, maybe they've not understood investment propositions before this is a complex area but the but the opportunities for growth in this area and the value that it will bring to human society and of course to to the natural world are immense there isn't another sector i think that's as pivotal or as important as this um and so I think the gap is going to be to ensure that um, you bring together the investment financial people with the ecologists in a way that can move us forward. So there you have an inspiring yeah. call to arms. <laughs> can I actually ask one quick question on this? Yeah. What, would, what would be your advice? Sorry, what would your advice be to your 25, 26 year old self? <laughs> Crikey, that's a great question as well. Um, <laughs> I, you crikey, um, what, or almost what would I have done different? I'm not, I'm not sure I would have done anything differently. I think, I think getting a grounding in, in pure ecology is really important. But, but I would say, actually, there's more opportunity to look at things in a multidimensional way than there was when I started out. So mm. I would say look for opportunities across different sectors. And I sort of fell into the whole bit about, you know, marketing ecology as, a, as an important. I mean, when I started out, you know, I was also not sure about this climate change. I thought this can't be correct. The world's massive. Why? How can we be having an impact? 
and just you know what did i know if you look you know look back then to where we are now climate change there are very very few climate change deniers um i would think get really solid educational grounding but read as read more i didn't read as much as i probably ought to have done when i was that age and so you come up with uh, ideas that have that you force with that, that you create within your own mind without the benefit of listening to others and it's always a great thing to listen to others i think if you do one thing is is to listen to others uh would it have changed what i did no but i think i it, it made it, it, the, the the opportunities that came my way were pretty pretty ad hoc there wasn't really any underlying sort of thread uh, that, that that enabled me to follow is basically piecing things together but having a great interest in lots of things I think was helpful and I would probably say to that 25 year old do more reading have more interest in lots of different things and see where it takes you and oh and the final thing is um, I definitely would say to people is take risk yes the benefit of hindsight it's a wonderful thing but that's very wise words i think uh and, and great advice as well to to all of us actually no matter what your age but thank you david um for your insights today uh philip and i really appreciate it it's fascinating discussion we'll certainly hopefully pick up with you again uh as we roll forward and and you know we see this come through to uh, fruition for you and environment bank and uh, and biodiversity at large thank you very much for your time today well thank you both it's been fantastic really enjoyed it and great questions thanks Thank you.